Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of racist ideologies, anti-Semitism, assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1930, 12-year-old Ben Klassen followed his father and older brothers through their rural German Mennonite village in Canada. He wasn't sure why they had asked him to join, but he was grateful for the break from his chores on the farm. As the Klassen men walked down the small streets, Ben realized they were headed to the town's small library. They ventured inside and didn't look twice at the pro-Nazi newspaper sitting on the front desk. They were proud of this new political party and agreed with the anti-Semitic rhetoric of the rising dictator, Adolf Hitler. Young Klassen followed the older men as they weaved through the shelves. He was a sharp student and an avid reader, so he was already familiar with the library. Still, something seemed different this time. His father stopped, perused the frayed spines of books, and selected two. Then he told his youngest son to hold out his hands and gave him the tomes international Jew, and Protocols of the Elders of Zion. His father told him to read both of those as quickly as he could. Eager to please, Klassen agreed. And in that moment, Klassen sealed his horrible fate. These two books were small stepping stones in his transformation into one of the most infamous anti-Semites in American history. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the life of Ben Klassen, founder of the Church of the Creator. A successful businessman, he used his influence to spread his racist message throughout America. Next week, we'll examine the church's resurgence and the terror it wreaked. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify.
When we think of a typical cult, there's some classic imagery that comes to mind. Long-haired hippies, a guru surrounded by praying followers, or a cluster of adherents searching the night sky for answers from another world. We've covered plenty of groups like that on this show, but a cult at its heart only really needs a set of in-group beliefs, something that defines us, the believers, and them, the non-believers. A cult provides some version of a universal secret that only the followers have access to. They are clued in on the truth, while the rest of the world is lost. Today's cult follows the same principles, but instead of a doomsday prophecy or an otherworldly savior, the Church of the Creator was centered around a much more basic form of us and them, racial, ethnic, and religious differences. Before he founded the Church of the Creator, Bernhard Klassen, who went by the nickname Ben, was born in February 1918 in a German Mennonite community in the Ukraine. Like the Amish, members of Klassen's community were traditionalist Christians known for their isolation from the world, simple communal living, and pacifism. But the families of Klassen's village took their isolation to the extreme. They were pious, disciplined people who closed themselves off from the rest of their Russian and Ukrainian neighbors. They refused to adapt to the local culture, including the language. Everyone in the community kept their native German language. Some also boasted about keeping their German bloodline pure, not allowing anyone to intermarry with the Russians. It's unclear why this Mennonite community was prejudiced, given their Christian beliefs. However, during Klassen's childhood, it seemed he had adopted the views of his community. It's hard to say if Klassen was actively racist at such a young age, but it's clear that the seeds of it had already been planted in his young mind. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. While the process by which people develop racist views is somewhat unclear, we've been able to study how people might acquire and let go of their prejudices. In an essay about how children acquire prejudices, social psychologist Allison Skinner writes, There's a great deal of psychological research showing support for the contact hypothesis, the notion that having close interactions with members of other groups reduces biases against them. This phenomenon has been supported among both adults and children. Unfortunately, in Klassen's case, the opposite seems true. He likely never got the chance to meet with Ukrainian and Russian locals and see that his parents' biases were unfounded. Skinner also identified that when children observe adults having a negative reaction to a person from another culture, it could lead children to devalue the music, food, or attire of a social group, merely based on the nonverbal signs that they observed directed toward a group member. Klassen was bombarded by the prejudiced social cues of his community, and their effects deeply impacted his psyche well into adulthood. Despite the community's belief in their superiority, they were still subject to the same hardships that plagued Russia in the early 20th century, namely the Bolshevik Revolution. For six years, the Russian Civil War raged through the country until the Bolshevik Party established the Soviet Union in 1923. During the conflict, the armies took food from the Russian and Ukrainian peasants, causing famines that devastated the civilian population. 
It's likely that hundreds of people died each day, and there was no time to bury all of them. Bodies were piled several feet high, children were left without their parents, and some people started practicing cannibalism to survive. While Klassen's community never resorted to those extreme measures, they were still directly affected by the unrest. In 1924, five-year-old Klassen and his family had had enough and fled Ukraine for another Mennonite community, eventually settling in Canada. Although they had escaped unharmed, Klassen's experience in Ukraine scarred him. Seeing all the death and hardship instilled in Klassen a harsh view of the world. The mistreatment his family endured at the hands of the Russian soldiers left him bitter and angry. The Christian beliefs of his parents seemed incompatible with the adversity he witnessed. He secretly questioned why God allowed innocent people to suffer, but he kept this skepticism to himself, worried how his devout parents might react. But as it turned out, it wasn't that difficult to keep his secret. His parents were too swept up in the growing power of the Nazi party to notice his wavering faith. The majority of people in Klassen's Canadian village were German Mennonites, they all supported Hitler and believed his message that Jewish people were the reason for Germany's humiliating defeat in World War I. According to Jake S. Wheeler's book about white nationalist groups called The Christ That Failed, Klassen's father and older brothers further indoctrinated the 12-year-old boy by giving him several anti-Semitic books. A few years later, Klassen would discover Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. After racing through it, Klassen told a friend, it brought home to me the overwhelming fact that the Jews controlled the world, and they were now, and had been for centuries, our most dangerous and sinister enemies. Klassen carried this bigotry with him as he started school. Being away from home each day removed him from the pious influence of the Mennonite community. By the time he graduated high school, went on to the University of Saskatchewan, he replaced his belief in God with certain philosophical concepts. Namely, he rejected the idea of good and evil and embraced the idea that nature destroyed the weak and rewarded the strong. In college, it seems that no one challenged his atheism, but they likely did challenge his anti-Semitism. Klassen's tiny Canadian village may have supported the Nazis, but the Canadian government declared war on Germany that September 1939, and most Canadians were strongly opposed to the Third Reich. While classmates likely exposed Klassen to worldviews that challenged his pro-Nazi sentiments, stepping into the outside world didn't seem to change his mind. It simply taught him to keep his anti-Semitism to himself. Klassen kept his head down throughout college, studying electrical engineering, and graduated in 1943. After a few years, he moved to Southern California to start his new career. Klassen kept his pro-Nazi views hidden when he arrived in America. Later on, Klassen wrote that he believed everything was all right in America. In other words, Klassen thought America was impervious to Jewish and other ethnic influences. It was a land in which white European men reigned supreme. Klassen liked the U.S. immensely and even found the love of his life there. In 1946, at the age of 28, he married Henrietta McWilliams. While we don't know much of Henrietta's background, we can assume that she deeply cared about Klassen and was eager to start a family. And in 1951, the happy couple welcomed their first and only daughter, Kim Anita, into the world. 
To provide for his family, Klassen became a real estate developer throughout the 1950s and found success in Southern California, the San Francisco Bay Area, and Nevada. And he was also an entrepreneur. In 1956, he patented a wall-mounted electric can opener, which he called Cano Electric. But larger manufacturers produced a similar product at a much lower price and ran him out of business a few years later. Although Klassen was upset that he had to close down his business, he still netted a handsome sum of money, and the defeat allowed him to transition to something he'd grown interested in, politics. Klassen had previously believed that America was a nation where white people ruled, and had put what he called subhuman races in their place. While it's true that America had historically oppressed ethnic minorities, the shifting policies of the late 50s and early 60s were starting to change that. Klassen was enraged when President Eisenhower ignored the racist white population's objections and integrated Little Rock High School in Arkansas in 1957. With events like that becoming more frequent, by the end of the decade, Klassen seemed to want a fresh start. In 1959, the 41-year-old moved his wife and daughter to the small affluent community of Lighthouse Point, Florida, a suburb of Fort Lauderdale. The town was home to only a few thousand residents, and nearly all of them were white. This suited Klassen just fine. There in Florida, Klassen continued working in real estate. But even in his small sheltered community, Klassen couldn't escape the news of change coming to the rest of the country. In 1961, Klassen became enraged when President John F. Kennedy sent 20,000 troops to ensure a black student stayed safe while attending the University of Mississippi. Events like that disturbed Klassen. The growing integration of American institutions triggered the racism of his upbringing and made him want to get involved in government. Klassen continued working in real estate to support his family while he found his footing in politics. Establishing himself came easily. By 1963, he had joined the John Birch Society, which author Jake S. Wheeler called the most recognizable far-rightist group of the 1960s. The group shared Klassen's prejudices and he became an avid participant. He eagerly paid the group's $10,000 lifetime membership fee, attended its events, and even used his real estate money to open a Birch Society bookstore in town. However, by 1966, after only three years of membership, 48-year-old Klassen grew frustrated with the society. He believed Jewish people had evil intentions and wanted to harm the white race, but the society didn't take that seriously enough for him. The society was preoccupied stirring up fear about communist conspiracies and had no time for Klassen's anti-Semitic beliefs. Angered, Klassen privately lambasted them for not taking the supposed Jewish threat seriously. Disenchanted with his brethren, Klassen took matters into his own hands. In 1966, he ran for the Florida State Legislature as a Republican, likely using his fortune to finance his campaign. While running, his platform promoted limited government and anti-busing, which was essentially a pro-segregation position, based on Klassen's belief that black children shouldn't have access to the same schools as white children. His message struck a chord with many people. It wasn't just his policies that attracted people to Klassen. Reportedly, Ben and his wife Henrietta were a vain, attractive couple whose money allowed them to indulge in the latest styles and trends. With Klassen's tall build, angular face, and slicked back hair, he looked just like Howard Hughes. 
With those external factors helping him, Klassen won the bid in 1966. At last, Klassen believed he could make a real difference in America and deal with the Jewish people once and for all. Coming up, Klassen uses his power to spread his hateful message. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out my series, Mythology, you don't know what you're missing. Heroes, gods, monsters, and mayhem. This podcast has it all. Every Tuesday, take a deep dive back in time, exploring the history, origins, and meaning behind the myths that have shaped the Earth. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes a story pulled from beliefs from around the world, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. Recent episodes include the epic battle between Hercules and Theseus, the grieving spirit known as La Llorona, and a treacherous journey to the land of the dead. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to the story. In 1966, 48-year-old Ben Klassen used his wealth to get him elected to Florida State Senate. He used this platform to espouse his anti-Semitic beliefs. But his victory was short-lived. Due to redistricting, Klassen had to run again in 1967, and this time, he was defeated. This defeat wasn't the end of Klassen's career in politics, though. He pivoted to working for the presidential campaign of George Wallace of the American Independent Party in 1968. Wallace had previously served as Alabama's governor and was known for his harsh segregationist views. Klassen believed that if Wallace won the presidency, he would ensure that white people maintained their elevated status in society. He eagerly joined Wallace's campaign. Klassen worked tirelessly to support Wallace during the primaries by presiding over meetings, distributing campaign finances, and organizing volunteers. But all of this amounted to nothing when Wallace lost the general election to Richard Nixon. The defeat devastated Klassen, but he didn't allow himself to wallow in the failure. Instead, in 1969, Klassen decided to cut ties with those around him. This included the John Birch Society, who he thought hadn't done enough and began planning his next move. In 1970, Klassen established the White Nationalist Party, which aimed to create policies that only benefited white people. The press closely followed the emergence of this openly racist third party. The Fort Lauderdale News got a statement from Klassen, who said that the purpose of his party was to demonstrate that the white Christian people who conquered America don't intend to be relegated to second-class citizenship. Klassen wasn't a Christian by any stretch. He'd been an atheist since his teenage years, but he knew that he'd need to pose as one to gain followers with similar beliefs. 
He hid behind the disguise of Christianity and proclaimed that his hatred for ethnic minorities was simply God's will. Klassen created a 14-point creed describing the new party's beliefs and goals. In one point, he wrote, We believe that the white race was created in the image of the Lord and represents his noblest and loftiest creation. With this new platform, Klassen's bigoted beliefs reached an even larger audience. He and his fledgling party toured around Florida, looking for financial donors. At each stop, they spread the message that the United States was founded by righteous Europeans, but was being torn apart by Jewish people and black people. However, Klassen's party failed to attract many new followers. Even the conservative Christian Republicans, Klassen's target demographic, resisted his message. According to author Jake S. Wheeler, when these potential recruits heard Klassen's anti-Semitic bombast, they believed it was decidedly unchristian. While many Christians used the Bible to justify their hate, a larger majority knew Jesus' teachings weren't anti-Semitic. They challenged Klassen and referenced verses in the Bible in which Jesus told people to love everyone as they love themselves. Faced with such widespread opposition, Klassen's white nationalist party dissolved in 1971, only a year after it was founded. This defeat caused Klassen to switch tactics. Instead of posing as a Christian to gain political clout, he decided to leave politics and speak out against the religion. In 1973, 55-year-old Klassen fully committed himself to creating a new belief system for the white race. At this point, Klassen had evolved from businessman to politician to white nationalist leader. Despite the ever-changing state of Klassen's careers, his marriage stayed rock solid. Although most associates had abandoned him, his wife Henrietta quietly stood by him, even as he embarked on this dangerous venture. She was with Klassen when he first published his views in a comprehensive book called Nature's Eternal Religion, a thick tome in which he described what he believed was wrong with the white race and how to strengthen it. To create such a work, Klassen drew inspiration from both Adolf Hitler's pseudo-Darwinian views and those of Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher and harsh critic of Christianity. Klassen claimed that living by biblical advice, like giving all of one's possessions away to the poor, was damaging to oneself and was the source of the white race's weakness. According to Klassen, the only way to get away from the negative effects of Christianity was to abandon faith altogether. To instill stronger values in his followers, Klassen developed a new belief system based on his views, which he called the Church of the Creator, otherwise known as COTC. One of the church's core mottos was to usher in a whiter and brighter future. To realize this vision, Klassen said they needed to incite a racial holy war, or Rahoa, presumably to eliminate what he considered to be the impure races. And Klassen wanted to lead this war, so he appointed himself as the Pontifex Maximus, a Latin term used in Rome which stood for pope or supreme leader, and called his disciples creators. But the name creator didn't refer to God or any other supernatural force. Instead, the term described the belief that the white race was the creator race of every good thing in civilization. Although Klassen identified the Church of the Creator as a religion and borrowed many religious terms, it was decidedly atheistic. He didn't believe in the supernatural, a god, or an afterlife. Klassen simply called his organization a church to claim tax exemptions. 
And it worked. Klassen fooled the government into granting his organization tax exemption status in 1974. That same year, Klassen printed 20,000 copies of Nature's Eternal Religion. He gave them away free to anyone he came in contact with, hoping to recruit new members. On that front, Klassen had some success. By 1976, Klassen claimed to have several hundred followers. While he often exaggerated his organization's figures, this small group of recruits was passionate. And soon, these followers founded new chapters in other parts of Florida, Texas, and Colorado. Klassen called the leaders of these new chapters reverends, and he expected them to recruit new members. Klassen tasked these reverends with buying and distributing 32 copies of Nature's Eternal Religion at their own expense each month. It seems that in addition to spreading his message, Klassen also wanted to make a profit. But this money-making scheme quickly failed. Although many of Klassen's reverends were eager to sell as many copies as they could, most people refused to purchase anything with such a hateful message. But Klassen wouldn't kick reverends out if they failed to meet their quota. He was so desperate for more followers that he encouraged his reverends to give the books away, perhaps by leaving them in stores or on people's porches. Klassen used the money his followers gave him to fund his next text for the COTC. In 1981, he published The White Man's Bible, which expounded on his doctrine. In 1983, he also began a newsletter called Racial Loyalty, which ensured he could keep his network engaged and angry, with regular updates about the decline of America. That same year, Klassen printed 25,000 copies of a third book called Salubrious Living, which was about New Age health practices and organic dieting. It advocated for sunbathing, as well as fruitarian and raw food dieting to avoid the supposedly harmful chemicals of processed foods. The subject might seem out of left field for an extremist leader, but the book was meant to, as author Jake S. Wheeler writes, aid and strengthen the minds and bodies of the white race. Despite all of the books and new rigid structure, throughout the 1970s, Klassen noticed that his membership numbers had stagnated. His uncompromising and bigoted views likely alienated his political and business connections. To reinvigorate the movement, Klassen released his new health book and newsletter, but he needed a personal change. That's why in the early 1980s, 10 years after starting the COTC, 65-year-old Klassen and his wife, Henrietta, packed up their car and moved. They traveled 650 miles north from Florida to Otto, North Carolina, where Klassen bought a large 20-acre property. Rather than adjust his worldview, Klassen looked for a new audience. Klassen wasn't willing to abandon his beliefs. And according to a study by David Brookman and Joshua Kala in the journal Science, there's a possible explanation for this. Brookman and Kala set out to study how voters with prejudiced attitudes can have their minds changed through brief conversations with door-to-door -door canvassers. They found that simple conversations with prejudiced people could drastically change certain views. They wrote that their research suggested two decades of opinion change took place during a 10-minute conversation, and it persisted for at least three months. Unfortunately, Klassen's insular upbringing and dogmatic beliefs as an adult prevented him from learning about alternate viewpoints. 
Klassen wasn't open to meeting anyone outside his circle, let alone hearing about their experiences. He was so stubborn that even his followers knew to give him a wide berth. These rampant, unchecked views caused his racism to crystallize until it became a permanent part of him. The only person who didn't keep their distance was Henrietta. Despite Klassen's monstrous views, she was a devoted wife who encouraged him onward through his turbulent career. For his part, Klassen was deeply appreciative of her support and believed she was the only one he could fully trust. And she stood by even when Klassen explained another, more sinister reason for the move to the rural property. He intended to build a library, barracks, and a school for young boys to indoctrinate them into his cause. But to open the school, Klassen needed to recruit more. At the time, he had a few hundred followers, and that simply wasn't enough to fund his project to completion. Luckily for him, the perfect opportunity came in 1983, when Tom Metzger, the leader of the neo-Nazi hate group White Airing Resistance, invited Klassen onto his local access TV show for two episodes. Author Jake S. Wheeler described the style of Metzger's Q&A as a white nationalist Charlie Rose. Although Metzger's show didn't have the same reach as Rose's, it would still give Klassen access to a whole new white nationalist audience. This, Klassen believed, was just what he needed to turn the tide in his favor. Coming up, Klassen's followers violently answer his call for a racial holy war. And now back to the story. By 1983, 65-year-old Ben Klassen's controversial and racist written works had done little to grow his numbers beyond several hundred members. Hoping to change this, Klassen was excited to appear on the public access TV show of a fellow white nationalist, Tom Metzger. But the chance to appear on TV may have proved more harmful to Klassen's reputation than beneficial. Although Klassen boasted about having thousands of followers, Metzger discovered that wasn't true. It's unclear who Metzger's source was, but it came to his attention that the COTC only had a few hundred converts. Shortly before going on air, Metzger informed Klassen that he would only get one episode instead of the two he was promised. Klassen was furious and likely considered not appearing at all. However, with the help of his wife, Henrietta, Klassen swallowed his pride and accepted the decision. He appeared on the half-hour program looking like the successful businessman and politician he once was, in a gray suit, burgundy tie, and slicked-back hair. Klassen was used to speaking to large crowds and confidently introduced himself. He asserted that he had followers across the globe in countries such as England, Australia, and South Africa, Despite knowing this was untrue, Metzger didn't correct Klassen. Since they were both white supremacists, Metzger wanted Klassen to look good and spent the remainder of their time asking him a few softball questions like, what do you believe in? Why is the white race the pinnacle of evolution? And why is Christianity such a threat to America? True to form, Klassen discussed his anti-Semitism, his belief in the superiority of the white race, and his hatred for Christianity. He concluded by saying, Christianity is an alien religion that was foisted on us by our enemies, the Jews, and they did it for the purpose of softening us up so that they could enslave us. 
The 30-minute segment ended with the contact information for the Church of the Creator appearing on the screen. While we don't know how much of a success this one TV appearance was, by the late 1980s, Klassen's movement had grown. By 1988, 70-year-old Klassen claimed that the COTC now had 3,000 members. In reality, his following probably hadn't grown beyond a few hundred, but Klassen wanted to project an air of power and success. If the COTC did experience any growth, it might have come from the school, which he called the School for Gifted Boys. Young skinheads interested in becoming political figures like Hitler and Mussolini flocked to Klassen's property to learn how they could lead the masses. But even this small amount of momentum would come to a screeching halt. In 1989, Tom Metzger, the host of the TV show Klassen had appeared on, was sued in civil court by the Southern Poverty Law Center, or SPLC, a legal advocacy nonprofit that often deals with hate groups. In this case, the SPLC was representing an Ethiopian family whose 28-year-old son was killed by a group of Metzger's young skinhead disciples in a November 1988 attack. Although Metzger wasn't directly involved, he was accused of inspiring the attack with his racist ideology. After weeks in court, the judge ruled in the family's favor and ordered Metzger to pay $12.5 million in damages. Metzger didn't have anything close to that sum, but the court still took $100,000 from him, as well as his house. The litigation left Metzger homeless and bankrupt, and it shook Klassen as well. Klassen feared that if the legal system could take down Metzger for the actions of his followers, they might do the same to his much smaller organization. And over the next few years, Klassen stewed in his paranoia. He worried about his followers doing anything violent and dreaded that the government would take everything he had worked so hard to build and send him to jail. Although the government didn't try to do this, they still disrupted the COTC's operations. In 1989, the IRS determined that the COTC no longer qualified for religious tax exemptions. For a church to maintain its tax exemption status, it can't become a for-profit organization, attempt to influence legislation, or commit illegal activities. The COTC was guilty on at least two counts. Klassen profited from the money the church received from donations and the church's goal of starting a racial holy war was not only opposed to the best interests of the public, but would require illegal acts of violence. The IRS's decision came as a huge blow to Klassen and added another financial strain on his dwindling resources. At this point, much of the wealth Klassen had accumulated in real estate had disappeared. He had poured all of his money into developing his property and self-publishing his writing. But if Klassen thought he had hit rock bottom, he was dead wrong. Klassen wanted to lay low and avoid problems with the government, but a 35-year-old member of the COTC named George Loeb prevented that. Loeb got involved with the COTC in the 80s and ran the group's Jacksonville chapter. He was prone to violent racist outbursts against his black neighbors, which got him in trouble with the law on several occasions. Yet even his encounters with the police didn't force him to change his ways. They only made him angrier. On May 17, 1991, Loeb was driving in a mall parking lot when he nearly crashed into the car of a black Gulf War veteran named Harold Mansfield. In frustration, the 22-year-old Mansfield laid on his horn, which caused Loeb to step out of his car. 
Mansfield, having just returned from active duty, wasn't afraid of Loeb and stepped out as well. The two argued for some time, with Loeb calling Mansfield degrading names. Despite this verbal assault, Mansfield got back in his car and drove away. Loeb carried on with his business, but didn't calm down. He walked into a nearby convenience store and bought two six-packs of beer. He continued to shout racist slurs in the store, even though Mansfield was long gone. However, as Loeb was leaving the store, Mansfield returned to the parking lot with his friend Stephen Rutledge and a brick. Witnesses reported to the Tampa Tribune that Loeb was unintimidated and continued taunting them, saying, why don't you go back to Africa or wherever you came from? By this point, Mansfield had heard enough. He waved the brick in his hand and threatened, I feel like hitting you with this. But Loeb was hoping for this escalation and came prepared. He suddenly pulled out a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun and started shooting. He hit Mansfield who crawled back into his car. Rutledge ran into a store for cover. Loeb peeled out of the parking lot while Rutledge called for help. Sadly, by the time paramedics got to Mansfield, he had bled out and died. While authorities arrived on the scene, Loeb raced to his apartment to get his things, and with his wife Barbara, quickly fled Florida for New York. They successfully evaded law enforcement for a few weeks. But life on the run was difficult. They quickly ran out of funds. Desperate for food and without money, Loeb and his wife tried to steal a package of sandwich meat from a convenience store, but a security guard caught them, and in an attempt to flee, Loeb assaulted the guard. Loeb was no match, and the security guard subdued him and called the police. Upon arriving, the officers ran a check on Loeb and found he was wanted for murder. They arrested him and brought him back to Florida to face justice. Loeb's trial languished in court. His defense lawyer aggressively tried to claim Loeb was acting in self-defense because Mansfield had been armed with a brick, but the jury didn't buy it. They eventually found Loeb guilty of first-degree murder, and a judge sentenced him to life in prison without parole. While worrying about what he'd learn about Loeb, Klassen's attention was consumed by another, more personal matter. His loyal and loving wife, Henrietta, was diagnosed with cancer. But Klassen's attempts to stop the disease couldn't save Henrietta, whose condition deteriorated. On January 24, 1992, 74-year-old Klassen discovered that Henrietta had finally passed away. Although they had both known the end was near, Nothing could have prepared him for the pain. Later, Klassen wrote, When I saw she had stopped breathing, I almost envied her. And why not? She had lived her life in dignity and died the same way. All her troubles, pain, and anguish were over and gone. With his wife dead, there was no one left to lean on. Even worse, for Klassen, there was no hope that they'd be together again in the afterlife. The permanence of her loss sent Klassen spiraling into a deep depression. A study published in the Journal of Affective Disorders studied the differences between men and women after losing their spouse. The publication stated, The results showed that widowed men had higher depression severity than widowed women. One possible explanation for this finding may be that men rely particularly on their wives for social support. And Klassen certainly relied on his wife for social support. Without any deep friendships, Henrietta was the only one who Klassen felt like he could count on. He never recovered from her loss. 
Henrietta's death, combined with the news about George Loeb, drained Klassen in every way. Fearing he would be implicated in Loeb's case, Klassen decided he needed to cut all ties with the group he founded. He sold the 20-acre property surrounding his house to another white supremacist in July 1992. In a hurry to wash his hands of his property, he sold it for a fraction of its market value. The formerly savvy businessman didn't even seem to mind. Having rid himself of the property, Klassen only had to name a successor and be free of the COTC forever. But Klassen had a difficult time locating such a person. It seemed like each time he found a potential new leader, they were in trouble with the law. To Klassen's relief, after months of searching, he finally found his successor, Rick McCarty, in December 1992. Exhausted from having to manage the COTC in his old age, Klassen transferred the ownership and all of the church's assets to McCarty, who decided to change the headquarters of the COTC back to Florida. All Klassen wanted at this point was peace, but not because of a change of heart about his beliefs. He merely just wanted an end to the violence so he wouldn't go to jail or get sued. But Klassen's message had already infected numerous minds, and peace would be impossible. In July 1993, 19-year-old Washington State COTC leader Jeremiah Nessel bombed the meeting hall of the NAACP in Tacoma. Two days later, Nessel detonated a pipe bomb at a Seattle gay bar. Thankfully, no one was killed in either attack. Nessel was sentenced to six and a half years in prison for the Tacoma attack. With Klassen's wife dead, his property sold, and unable to escape the violence his movement inspired, Klassen felt like he had nothing to live for. On August 7, 1993, 75-year-old Klassen set fire to a stack of personal documents and died by suicide, swallowing four bottles of sleeping pills. The man who had wanted to unite the white race and save it from corruption died alone and morally bankrupt. The Church of the Creator collapsed shortly thereafter. In 1994, the Southern Poverty Law Center sued the COTC for damages on behalf of Harold Mansfield's family. Without effective leadership, the COTC couldn't contest the case, and the judge ordered the COTC to pay the Mansfield family $1 million. But the SPLC didn't stop there. Not long after, they also sued the white supremacist leader who had bought Klassen's land and successfully seized the 20-acre property. Bankrupt, leaderless, and fearful of the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Church of the Creator finally disintegrated in late 1994. But the organization wouldn't stay dead for long. In the mid-90s, a young outsider named Matthew Hale resurrected the church, like some sort of perverse miracle worker. He was better educated than Klassen, more cunning and not afraid of violence, even if it meant going after a powerful federal judge. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two and the violent deeds of the Church of the Creator. We'll see how Matthew Hale breathed new life into the organization and inspired more violence. 
For more information on Ben Klassen and the Church of the Creator, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jake S. Wheeler's The Christ That Failed, The Origins of Anti-Christianity Within American White Nationalism, very helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Robert Heckert, with writing assistance by Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 